If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. With no more ado, please join me in welcoming Brian Catling and Ian Sinclair. I was lucky enough to be um, Brian's first publisher. You know, I had no choice in the matter. He sort of announced that he had a book ready to do. It was called Necropathia, and it lived up to that. <laughs> I think it was about three weeks before the first lawyer's letter arrived from somebody in Leeds who, who'd... Uh, one of those uh, free-floating serial killers had it might be in the audience. decided to, <laughs> to use this book as inspiration and, and assumed that I was a, a publisher of sort of slasher novels. But we, we got beyond that, and uh, as, as things went on, I mean, although Brian was evidently uh, you know, a master at uh, refining and sharpening text and balancing it against the the sculptures that he made at that time, behind it, lurking all the time, was my own nagging notion that that the kind of anecdotes he was delivering and the images that were stuck in his mind would have to evolve into some form of fiction or or a large prose work. But I imagined it on quite a modest scale, on the sort of scale of um, a book he did called Stumbling Block which was done by Bookworks and looked like a piece of slate. It was a really, really beautiful, immaculate text in which the production of the book and the words that were in the book were balanced in a certain way and that, that actually uh, revived the sense of the city. They were, they, were, they were not in the way that I... I'm more pedantic-minded. I mean, essentially, I'm trawling up the detritus of the streets and scavenging and um, making structures from that, navigating across London, whereas these were, were from other worlds that were also London at the same time. And that's quite a trick to pull off. And the stumbling block was, was about these weathers, these lights, the strange shapes and colours you get over Whitechapel that made it special, but they weren't in the way that the, the stories that I'd been involved with, teasing out detective stories around <coughs> with Rachel Lichtenstein, obviously dramatically about David Litkins, uh, Rudinsky, the hermit of Princelet Street, or the investigations we did around the crimes of the Victorian era. Um, and 
the figure of William Gull, who was a Victorian surgeon, emerged into this landscape one night when we were, we were both working in Truman's Brewery in a superbly named Ullage Cellar. And what this was, was literally this darkened pit where a couple of troglodytes hung out and unsuspecting people were brought into work. And they, their trick was to shake up the barrels of old slops that were in there so that the, the, the measuring device, the plug that was in these, exploded into your face. They thought that was quite amusing. <laughs> but uh, the, the good thing about this was that it, the, the physical labors were over by about 10 or 10.30 in the morning, and then you were free to investigate the territory. And in, in this process, we, we uh, stumbled across this figure of the Victorian surgeon, Sir William Gull, partly through the writer Stephen Knight, who was a, a kind of nosy journalist who was um, suborned by a man who claimed to be the son of Sickert, so who was hanging around the scene and told this story with a vast conspiracy theory. And I think well, no, nobody was necessarily convinced by this story but the figure of the surgeon, uh, who was a very real character from Thorpe Soken, and how he came into London and how he established himself in Guy's Hospital <coughs> began to haunt us. And we both, I wrote about it a lot in my uh, first novel, Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings. And uh, we visited Thorpe Soken and other places associated with Gull, and it, it became a, a, a part of our lives. When I first saw a spy cartoon of Gull, I, I had no idea what he looked like. It was quite astonishing because he actually looked very like Brian. He was, he was uh, a lot smaller, but he had very much the same uh, gravitas and performance. He could almost have been a performance artist. So he was performing himself, um, and he was much more than a surgeon. He was also uh, a presence, a writer, and he haunted London. And so it was very extraordinary to see Gull reappear in the novel Lavore because Lavore is a essentially an internal landscape in which it's about the idea of the fecundity of the forest. That the forest is the, the missing garden of Eden. It's also something that can suck away your soul and disappear and release all these stories. And so the book pivots on the idea of one, this immense and unreadable forest, and two, the, 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 the parasitical colonial town in which all kinds of generic strangenesses happen. Put the two together, and you have you have a, a, a dynamic kind of energy. Well, well, what happens in the book is that uh, Edward Mybridge, the the photographer, who we were also interested in a different way, <coughs> it turned out that that at one point in his trajectory, his, his path crossed with William Gull. Very unusual story, and I think I'd read about it in Rebecca Solnit, and I alerted Brian to this strange conjunction, and it became part of the book. So maybe we start with him reading. Does this mean I've got to introduce your book the same no, way? No, you don't have to say anything about that. Because, I mean, that would Jesus, mean, that would mean you'd that'd be hard work. You'd have to read it. At first, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I haven't quite got around to that. Because I can pretend um, I've read this better than you. Um, yeah, no, so you can introduce all right. the book. Well, just to say nothing. Nothing to say. Um... The goal character was something that had been haunting for a long time. And um, when I started this, there was absolutely no... I was trying to steer away from the East End. I was trying to move in opposite directions. And 
using Raymond Roussel's forest as a way to, as, as a long way off, and to use that imaginatively. I have no, absolutely no intention that one foot was going to set back into London in the East End. And we had a, your usual phone calls and meetings, and I mentioned about my bridge, I just found some other things out about my bridge. And Ian casually mentioned, did you know that after my bridge's accident, we, he, he broke his head rather badly in the stagecoach accident, he went to see William Gull in London. He'd been living in America for 10 years. Now, the likelihood of this is, you know, extraordinary. And I just, what, what did you say? So I then went to the book, um, the Sonnet book, and read that. And then went read everything else I could. And it was a two-sentence description, because it's nothing other than a kind of diary comment, that when he was in London, he went to see William Gull. So that's all there is. There's nothing more, which is a fantastic thing. It's like the curtain going up on the stage you've never... You've never imagined. And of course, once you start to imagine it, there's no way back. So, so I, I had to have that scene, which then, of course, opened up an entire direction back into the East End and back into London, which it was never supposed to be. But as I keep saying to people, I, this is not something that I wrote, it wrote me. I, I, I'm responsible. Um, I'm responsible for everything that's weird and peculiar in it. I'm, I'm not responsible for any praise that it may come towards me because I don't recognise it. And recently, uh, Mark will know that I've, you know, when I've tried to look back into it and tried to praise it, I, I, I don't remember it because I've moved on to the next one and the next one and the next one. So writing novels come to me rather late in my life. I studied this when I was 61. Ian's been pushing for almost 30 years <laughs> for this to happen. Um, including taking Blood Meridian and saying, look, see at the top of it, he tells you exactly what he's going to write. You could do that. Uh, and I didn't. Um, so this is a... You, you want to hear this, so I'm going to do it for you. But it's uh, So this is the meeting um, which actually occurred amazingly, amazingly. And it should have occurred just like this. It didn't, but it should. <laughs> How do you know? You found out something else? Yeah. Carry oh, on. Well, now he tells me. Carry on. Edward Muybridge, excuse me, Edward Muggeridge was a hollow man, born that way, a camera without an aperture, closed and hoping that nobody would ever see the volume of his dark interior. He worked hard on the panelled walls that framed him, changing this when he felt it would give gravitas and solemnity as he did his name. He left England to start a new life and roamed the Americas, starting modest businesses, scratching a respectful living, selling other people's images of the world. Until a fateful day in 1860 when he missed the boat and instead left San Francisco by stagecoach. In mid-Texas philosophy, concussion and blood changed the signature of Edgar Muggeridge forever. Before the accident, he was a 30-year-old man filled with vapour, aimless and devout, seeking a place in the world where he might gain weight and merit. When the speeding stagecoach had tripped on the unseen route, it had spun into the air and splintered, mangled and spilling all the lives it carried. He alone survived, tossed amongst the wrenched luggage and the broken, kicking Mustangs. He had cut himself out of the canvas, 
a petticoat from a dead woman's luggage, staunching his, his blood from his head, swooning clear of the hooves which were now running against the sky, trying to gain the purchase of the dying clouds. He now saw horses all the time, galloping in his headaches, their iron hooves sparking the dendrite fuse wire to the fire of his brain. He saw them cantering, all turning to white, eyes rolling, savage. He heard them walking, their echo mocking the vacant night streets below his hospital bed. They paced his beginning and demise with an equal measured step. The aperture that had been gouged into his brain had no lens. It was permanently sick in double vision and raging in pain. After 15 months, he took the compensation from the stage company and set sail to England to find a cure or a focus. First, he changed his name, Edward Mygridge. Second, he sought a doctor. Upon his return, the capital was swarming with horses. Their stink and their volume made him shiver as he crossed London Bridge. His first consultation waited on the other side of the teeming river. He was early for an appointment. This was a condition that continually occurred. He forced himself to stop on the bridge and allowed the slowness of the actual time to catch up to his velocity. Placing his hands on the gritty stone, he looked down into the frantic activity of the Pool of London. Cargo ships were moored three deep along its banks, their masts creaking against a spiny forest of cranes and the new verticality of smoke from the steamers. All extended higher than the buildings that clung crab-like to the land. Dozens of barges nudged and grated against each other. The restless tide, the wake of commerce. At times, Ridgeville could not be seen at all. A vast activity, activity smothered it. The detritus it bred was like the rough, woven carpet, heaving over a secret turmoil. It was impossible to believe that it was the same river that flows so gently through his hometown in Kingston-upon-Thames. Its broad ripple gave reflection and beauty. It was sufficient, idle boating and rumination. There you could smell its vitality. The tar, smoke, sewage and proximity of Billingsgate gave the stench in front of him a very different signature. He pulled the great watch from his pocket, flicked it open and realised it was time. Dr William Withygoal was on schedule. His consulting room sat high on the brow of the building facing the river. The spire of Southwark Cathedral and the dome of St Paul's could be aligned from his oriel window. Like them, the two men were almost cartoon opposites. Goal, opulent, padded, slick. A man grounded and in possession of his life. He retained the bones of his labouring family, held them in check like fine but simple tailoring. He wore his growing eminence in saturated gravity. Mygridge, lean and dry, a longing, husked in doubt, frowning himself into biblical status, nervous, darting and ill. They shook hands, each gauging the other. Mygridge sat and proceeded to rate his medical history, the condition of his skull since the accidents, the shifts of perception. Gold stood behind him as he talked, examining the cranium of his agitated man, feeling the words reverberate beneath Mygridge's scalp. He held the cup of an occupant and moved it, his hand forward, until it felt the ridge of the bregma, the overriding bone. 
He fingered the Carino suture, sensing its tension under controlled pressure. The motion of his square hands under long matted hair made it look like a bizarre tableau of ventriloquism. He moved them further forward to determine the displacement or division or division of the nasal frontal suture. He then sat back behind his Jurassic desk and began to make notes of his observation. Was it your face that took the impact of the crash? The patient put his hands through his face and covered his eyes. Here, forehead, here, he said. Tell me, the surgeon said, when you came to after the crash, with the, what sensations did you feel? What sensation, sensory images do you remember? I smelt cinnamon, and everything was blurred, like a double exposure for days. His hands fingered the scar where the bone had peeped through on that terrible day. Cinnamon and burnt leather, a numbness in my hands, and the horses, the horse. I was lying on the earth near one of the dying horses, staring at it as it lay on its back, slithering superstitions of many bodies, multiple legs outstretched. I didn't know which of us was upside down. What is a double exposure? asked Cole. Oh, it's a term photographer. It's a term used by photographers. It's when two images are fused together, one picture on top of another. Gold stared at him. It's an optical fixture of two different times, then. Uh, yes, it could be said. How do you sleep? Badly. Sometimes not at all. Unsurprised at the answer, Gold nodded and made a mark in the book on his desk. Is it a bad sign? asked Muggeridge. No, not for you. Sleep is a complex matter. The body only needs an hour or so, but the mind requires more, and the soul sometimes becomes involved and greedy. I'm not sure I understand, Dr. Gore. But before Mygridge could press his confusion, Gore had seated him, and the matter and, 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 and the matter continued in a different direction. The questions lasted for 20 minutes. Then the surgeon moved across the room to one of his glass-fronted cabinets and selected an instrument from within. He carefully wound its clockwork mechanism and strapped it onto his patient's head. It was made of brass and glass. With a delicate set of folding blinkers and mirrors, some darkened by plating. The surgeon pulled up a chair to face his patient and adjusted the metal discs, close to the sides of Mygridge's worried eyes. Both his hands worked the device, bringing his face close to the man so he could sm smell each other's breath. Tiny ratchets clicked, announcing the adjustments. It's a perithoscope, the surgeon explained. It should interest you, you being a scholar of the optic world. I am no such scholar. I have only read a little and recently bought my first camera. Gold ignored this comment and moved his chair and physicality, physicality, turning the patient's head towards the oriel window, setting a clamp on his neck and chin. This will be like a photographic portrait, he said mildly. Now look through the central panel to the window and focus on the dome. The patient wanted to correct him about the old-fashioned portraits in which the sitter was secured in the metal frame, held still while the slow camera collected his or her death-like image. He had already thought of a way to dispose with such artificial contrivances. The dome, please, the surgeon demanded. The middle pane of glass was different from the rest, clearer with a greenish hue. The distant dome was framed in the bright confines. The patient stared. Now, please don't move. Just stare at the dome. 
That was the surgeon's last words as he paced from one side to the other behind the patient. He touched the headset, activating spinning discs and minute reflections of light, almost out of vision, like the suns and moons of a distant planet, containing it in an unstable darkness inside the corners of the patient's eyes. A night that shimmered with endless space, drawing light particles from inside his vision, from his surroundings, even from the glowing dome. Outside time was changing, and the tide of the sea river turned back towards the sea. Something in the space between the double dome fluttered and shifted in unison. When the motors were stopped and all the movement ceased, the day had vanished. He sat in the twilight room, growling, chilled. The stars rode outside, frosting the air. Dr. Gold lit a lamp and put a shawl about his patient's shoulders, gently removing the device from his head. He sat unclamped and stiff in the wooden chair, his attention still fixed on the oriel window. Please make yourself more comfortable, Mr. Mygridge. The surgeon's voice seemed far off and above him. The continual dull pain in his head had gone and he felt exhausted. A glowing sense of euphoria was making him feel curiously weightless. It's the angels, Cole said. The angels of silence to hide between the whispering gallery and the outer dome of the cathedral. They have crossed the Thames and are fluttering in your head. Quite normal to feel a little dazed. He smiled broadly at Mikeridge, who was gripping the surgeon's words like a vertiginal handrail in the gallery of St. Paul's. Your eyes are miraculously undamaged. The zygomorphic bones of your face conduct the impact of the accident back and upwards into your brain. I surmise that the force of the shock was considerable, but caused no long-term structural damage. Gore leant back in his leather chair and looked dramatically into the photographer's gaze. There may be side effects, he said, but I think it might be alleviated or at least diluted by this afternoon. The peripheral vision and its territories of sight are senses of virtually unexplored. My device measures and takes the litmus of their most emotional potential, their mental humours. Do you understand? I have also made some inward adjustments without the need of scalpel or saw. He got up and made the necessary movements to conclude the meeting. As he conducted migrants towards the door, he said, are you planning to return to the Americas? Mygridge nodded, eventually. I would do it soon, if I were you. Better be in the landscape, away from people for the next few years. Use your cameras to take pictures of the wilderness. Force your sight and your imagination outward. It's better for you. I'd like to talk a little bit about this book, Black Apples of Gower, which has no obvious relation to that, but which, in fact, does have some connections when you start to dig at it. It's a real um, memory book and an unexpected book for me. I was given the um, invitation to write about place by the very fine, I think, little Toller Press, who do beautiful books and who allow you to use color, archives, strange postcards, and who pick up on your suggestions very well. For example, I'd seen at the, the front of the, the book, um, when I'd looked at 
books that had belonged to Kerry Richards, he had the habit of, of making drawings and, and just sticking them into other people's books. For example, in the poet Vernon Watkins's book, Fidelities, there was this sketch of the gov. And I suggested to Little Toller that they work on that and they try and incorporate that same sense. And they exactly did it and got it right. And I thought that was very good. And that, that launched me into the idea that instead of writing about London and the kind of landscapes that Brian's been talking about, I, I, I went back to something else that was much older and deeper in me, which was the, the sense that the only significance of London is that it's actually a Welsh colony. <laughs> you know, essentially London is founded by the burying the head of Bran, the Blessed, in Tower Hill. And Tower Hill is the place of execution, which is where Brian has made a, a pillow, glass pillow monument that's now sitting within, you know, to, to uh, signify the executions of English queens. Well, all of that fits with Welsh mythology and the Mabinogion very well. So I was always comfortable coming here. And all of the stuff that I've done in terms of London myths have actually been based on the notion of it being a Welsh story. Uh, but I didn't let on about that until now. And then suddenly, <laughs> this landscape, you know, in the way that the forest, you know, the fecundity of the forest actually seeped out of Brian's Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Consciousness and became his internal landscape in the same way the sharpness of the carboniferous limestone pavements between Port Ayn and Worm's Head, which were extraordinary were actually the spine of everything I'd written. But I couldn't come back to it till late on. Uh, and the inspiration was, was several fold, but it, it was a painting or a series of paintings by Kerry Richards that refer, referenced the black apple of Gower, which was the idea of this circular shape containing male and female buried within what I'd taken to be a fairly mythical landscape, which on reality, became a very real landscape. Uh, and one of these paintings was sent to Jung, who responded and held, and held that it held this essential mystery of our time. And I, be I believed that too. Uh, and what it, what it held was the, the uh, idea of the cave of origin, that uh, the Pavilion Cave, or the Goat's Hole Cave on the Gower, was where the oldest ritual human burial in this land uh, was discovered by a man called William Buckland, 
uh, he turned out these bones and believed, he called it the Red Lady of Gower, because he believed that it was uh, some kind of prostitute that had come down from the Roman fort that was supposedly on the hill above. It wasn't, in fact. It was a young man, a hunter, who, who was uh, much older than was supposed, 36,000 years old. And at that point, the sea was 70 miles out. It wasn't on the sea at all. Uh, the cave was a, was a pyramid, and it stood out because it was golden lichen. It had a, stood out, and the cave stood at the top of this thing and was a sight as you moved across, coming up from what would be Spain now. You could have walked across to Ireland. This thing stood there, and it became a site of ritual burial. It wasn't a place that people had lived in, and it wasn't a place that was filled with animal bones. And at three stages of my life, I tried to access this cave. First, I, as a sort of teenager, full of all the hormonal push and all the trying out, crawling into caves, doing all that stuff, we go across this landscape. No maps, no anything, and, and find ourselves finally in Worm's Head at Rosilli, where there's this huge beach. And it, it's a, a memory of that period of our lives. And then, much more calculatedly, in the early 1970s, I think 1972, I took Brian back down there, and we walked over that landscape again. He made drawings which appear in this book and which also went into an exhibition in the Whitechapel Gallery. And I made a series of very large photographs. And uh, what was wonderful in, in placing that time against this time is that we were, we were both working, <coughs> as I said, in the Elledge Cellar in Truman's Brewery. And, and in the old overalls and covered in the filth and urge and stinking of Guinness from the free pints that were on our desk when you got to work, we went into the Whitechapel Gallery and said... Uh, <coughs> We're, uh, we're local artists, you know, and we, we have a small press here doing stuff, and I know it's part of your remit to represent local artists. Can we have a show? And they said, uh, yeah, all right. So, you know, within about a, a minute, there was a, a room in the, in the Whitechapel Gallery full of goat's heads and stones <laughs> and these needlepoint drawings of Brian's that represented this landscape and my big landscape photographs and paintings by a friend of mine, Richie Bittman. Now uh, that all of this material is in, archived in the Whitechapel Gallery, and the, the Whitechapel Gallery has a little archive gallery, represents stuff that's in their archive. And the curator, Gareth Evans, who's often here introducing stuff, said, well, it would be extremely logical if you put on a show to, to represent that moment, because it seems quite significant. Brian has gone on to do bits and pieces. And you've had the odd book published. And uh, it would be nice to, to gather up some of this material. So he applied to the archive, and they said, ooh, well, if you look at, you're looking at 2018 as a possibility, <laughs> if you're lucky, and if you can fill in these sort of multiple... So that's then, and this is now. And this book tries to move between these two things and to give an account of what it was like to, to make that walk in the, in the excitement of finding a, a landscape of completely alien qualities. Once you'd stepped away from Port Island. We, I mean, the photographs of uh, Brian that are in this book are, are, it might as well be on the moon. It's completely savage. It's extraordinary. And I think it haunted us both. And uh, my idea was that, that uh, some of the shapes he was making from the landscape drawings of, of kind of bone-like vertebra going up into the sky was, was a haunting element that becomes the beginning of the war when, when the spine is stripped out and that ritual was actually 
already there at this moment. The, the final uh, confirmation of this was when I was trying to dig out images for this book. I found some very tattered old yellow paper with rusted staples of the poems that he had done after making this war. And the title on the front, handwritten, was The Roar. It was 1972. <laughs> it's essentially a Welsh book. Uh, again, yeah, everything is. Uh, then the final the walk, as it were, was um, last year when I, I went back over the ground again. Now it's an official coast path. My wife and I walk it, and it's sort of as if it's suddenly gone into color. And uh, the first headland, and now the impressive thing is acoustic. It's the sound of the sea bell. There's, a, there's an incredibly haunting note of a sea bell out there. And again, I realize this references Kerry Richards, his paintings around the drowned cathedral, and he's listening to Debussy. Uh, and the whole structure I mean, beautifully folds into itself. But there's one element missing, is that I still haven't got into the cave. Because the cave, the Pavilion Cave, is not signed anywhere off this. They don't really want you to go there. So I go back a final time, um, and uh, I go down. I, I find the right slade, as they call them, these little chasms or crevasses that lead down to the seashore. And you can only get access for one hour a day when the tide is out. I crawl around cliff faces. Brian knows about this because we've, uh, in the past, I have taken him in, in severe mist to the edges of enormous cliffs where we're very lucky to survive. Um, First uh, time. And I've given up. I, I, and then I see that a figure has emerged from nowhere um, appeared on the, the cliff path. I haven't seen anybody all day um, standing talking to my wife who's waiting at the bottom. And this is a strange, um, really a witch-like woman of great potency who says, uh, I'm going to Pavilion Cave like, if you want to follow me. So we to slide down now, through a series of sharp-edged rock pools that get us down to the shore and then climb up and it finally into the cave. And the whole story of Buckland emerges from that. Uh, and and you, you realize what an extraordinary eccentric he was. And of course, the other thing I discover is that the bones, which I thought I knew very well from the Pavilion Cave in Swansea Museum, which looked sufficiently dusty and antique and odd, and the, uh, the writing is spidery, are actually fakes. They're just replicas. The real bones were in Oxford in the University Museum, uh, roughly five yards from where Alan Moore came along to introduce the first version of the war, which was launched there. So, in a sense, the whole weird cyclic thing occurred. And the other aspect of this is that sort of really unexpected. When you, when you undergo one of these memory projects, uh, walking across London and writing about London, as I do most of the time, it's as if there are memory cairns pl plastered across the landscape. There are things that confirm your own identity because you're seeing places you've been many times that have a residue of memory. It's like Scott leaving food cairns across the Antarctic in the hope that you can survive by touching on these things, even as the buildings collapse around you. Well, that's fine, but in this landscape there's nothing like that. And the, the only confirmation is that you, as an individual moving through it, are of no significance. You, you disappear. You, it's a way of vanishing, and that all that matters is the place itself. But there are these series of characters involved with it. 
um, the book with Vernon Watkins, the poet, who's a friend of Dylan Thomas and lived in Pennard and who I'd visited as a, as a young schoolboy who was very generous to me. Um, he, he became a great friend of Kerry Richards who spent time there as well. Vernon Watkins had this great double life. He was a sort of bank clerk in Swansea and he chose to be and then came back and once he stepped off the bus he was free to become and interpret the script of the stones as he called it. Uh, unfortunately, on some occasions, he was so caught up in the poems that he was going to do that he forgot to lock up the bank. So the bank <laughs> in St. Helens and Swansea was wide open. Nobody went in. But a policeman was sent out with a bunch of keys to go to his bungalow and tell him, Mr. Watkins, I'm afraid you should have locked up this place. So you've got Vernon Watkins, you've got Kerry Richards, and then you've got Brian, of course, um, doing the walk with me and interrogating the landscape and storing up some of the elements that re-emerge years later in the war. So there are all of those connections, as well as the final trip to Oxford. One of the things, uh, as in the piece he's read, are about these, these figures from the Victorian era who haunted us. And I call them mentors and tormentors. And one of them, uh, apart from Buckland, who I've mentioned, but I've, I've read a few bits about him already, so I won't do that now. He was amazing because he... he decided to eat his way through the whole of creation. He was like a safari park glutton. He ate horses, lizards, mice, squirrels, hippopotamuses. He boiled a lot. And the final, the final thing is he goes to Newnham House, which is outside Oxford, a Palladian mansion, where they have this great relic, which is supposedly the heart of Louis XIV, kept in a silver box of some kind. They make a mistake and show it to him. And before they can move, he has whoosh, gags it down like a rancid oyster. It's gone. He goes, becomes clinically insane. But his son, you know, rather in the way that uh, Brian's son, Jack, has carried on this great tradition of performance, um, Buckland's son carried on the tradition of eating his way through the zoo. He, he had his house in London where these creatures were being boiled up at the same time as he produced a book, which Brian has got. But I wanted to read a little, little fragment about uh, another eccentric called William Price. And the reason for this is that al although the book is mostly about water and rock, there is an element towards the end, you know, when I started to think about my own family and my own upbringing in that territory, and the fact that uh, both my parents were cremated in this site, which is alongside uh, Kenfig Pool, which is a connects up with the idea of the drowned city because it was a, a whole village, a settlement, an important settlement that had been swallowed by the sea and by the sand. And right at the back of it is the Steel Company of Wales, all these chimneys belching up. And right in the middle of that was the crematorium. And then I remembered why uh, my, my parents, my mother in particular, who was very aboriginally Welsh, um, wanted to be burnt because of the presence of a man called William Price. So I'll just read a little touch about him. He's, he fits with Garland Mybridge very nicely. <laughs> My parents were married in Clan, which, but they were not buried there in the crowded ground with my maternal grandparents. I should describe this little graveyard in Clan, which is a village ab above my stag where I'd grown up. And because it's, it's important because it's the, one of the sites of the Mary Lloyd, which is a, a thing that Vernon Watkins wrote about, which was a buried horse who in the, in the real version, you slaughtered a horse and dug up the skull on New Year's Eve, and then these mummers would go from 
house to house to house, um, shrouded with the horse's head and sing at the door. And if you let them in, they represented the dead and you had to feed them. So uh, this, this was a village of uh, great significance. And when, when I went there to look for the graves of the grandparents and walked down this uh, path that led to the church, I realized I was actually walking down the street where I'd grown up because the names of my neighbors were now gravestones. It's sort of a very Dylan Thomas, Undermilk Woodish <laughs> moment. There they were, in order, going down the hill, exactly as the hill I'd lived on. And somehow my parents had slipped that and decided to be burnt. My mother made it clear that she favored cremation, a gesture perhaps at the fashion, initiated by the latter-day druid, Dr. William Price, who incinerated his infant son, Jesu Christ, Jesus Christ, in January 1884 on a flaming pyre at the end of a field commonly used for football on the hillside above the village of Clantrissen. The location was pointed out every time we made a family drive from Mystag to Cardiff. Price's father, another William, was a clergyman whose eccentricities stood out even among that spectrum of oddities sheltering in parsonages across the country. The Reverend Price, like Emmanuel Swedenberg, plunged naked into local pools and mud holes, cooling the fever of his religious ecstasies. He kept snakes in his pocket and carried a saw to carve bark from trees, which he later burnt, muttering ritual incantations. He spat on stones to validate them, and he always carried a pistol. The younger William, trained as a surgeon and living for a time near St. Paul's on the edge of the city of London, attended the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel. The epiphany came when Price, a Welsh nationalist, chartist, and political dissident, was in temporary exile in Paris. Visiting the Louvre, he discovered a stone with a Greek inscription he believed represented an ancient bard making obeisance to the moon. Very soon, he was interpreting the inscription as a prophecy of an invented Celtic prince. It was his duty, the doctor decided, to return to his native land and to free it from the cultural domination of the English colonists. To this end, he invented his own form of Welsh. There were ceremonies at the Rocking Stone in Pontypridd. Price stalked the abused hills carrying a moonstaff engraved with letters and figures, and he wore a strange one-piece green costume of his own design, which made him look like a gold prospector in a Sam Peckinpah movie. On his head was a trapper's fox fur hat. He cultivated a long white beard, and he refrained from cutting his hair. He led a parade through the streets of Merthyr Tydville, accompanied by a half-naked man calling himself Merlin and a goat. But these picturesque flourishes do not amount to a true portrait of a man outside his own time, the era of scientific rationalism, canals, quarries, railways, telegraph, newsprint, Darwin and Marx. Performing on the cusp of the first papers published by Sigmund Freud, Price tapped into visionary currents. He was a damaged shaman outside the system of the tribe. If the weight of history is legitimized by museums and salaried academics, did not support his cosmology of need. Like William Blake, he would invent his own. The truth was whatever he needed it to be, and fire cleansed all faults. When his time came on the night of January the 23rd, 1893, he called for a glass of champagne, and he was cremated on a two-ton stack of coal on the hillside above Lantrissen, 
in a ceremony witnessed by 20,000 people. Um, the uncanny connections, you know, which I've touched on already in this project. And the way the book is, is quite saturated, you know, I, um, with elements of the war, because I'm reading the new version of the war at this time that I was writing the book. Um, that, that very much becomes part of it. And, and having met this woman in the, in the cave at Pavilion, and discovering that her partner was Roland Hutton, who's one of the major writers on pagan Britain, it became inevitable to, to immediately go back to Oxford to see these original bones, and, and basically to, to reconnect with Brian and to, to visit those museums in, in the sense that, you know, in the era when he was a student, the, the, the notion of going into these museums and looking at these objects and entering into a dialogue with them was really important. And he was saying that students at the moment really don't, don't do that in the same way. I mean, they're, they're inhabiting kind of uh, digital realities and virtual space. They just do not, in a sense, go back into the museum and stare at these things that were there. So we had a day doing that. And then, of course, we had to finish in Newnham House with the relic and the heart. That was the final straw. But it, it, uh, there's a very tainted chapel there, which Brian had visited. And the horror of this place, in a sense, was that they demolished and obliterated the original villages that were there to put up this house. Um, and um, Oliver Goldsmith wrote The Deserted Village about this. It was, it was a, a blow like, essentially, the agricultural enclosures that are talked about by Clare or the Highland Clearances. This, this place, which was very real, was gone. And so as a final, final element, um, Brian wanted to drive out to, to the fields nearby, beyond, beyond the house. And there was a really strange thing of shadows. And it was as if, you know, to me, it reads that the shadows of the original buildings were still there. And they went in the wrong way. They didn't go in the way that the shadows of the trees as the sinking sun was. So I just finish up by, by this peculiar event that brought us both together into, into the world of the uncanny, which had been part of this book. Before we drove to Dorchester, Brian insisted on a detour through an estate towards a set of farm cottages and sheds. He expected this place, as on his previous trips, to be deserted and quiet, but there are obvious signs of occupation. There are tractors ready for use, so we turned back. He halted me again. The sun was low. He pointed to a patchwork of fields and pylons and solitary trees. And there was evidence of the hood of the uncanny that he carried around with him, along with those flashing, beeping tablets that bore the word burden of memory. All of the names and faces and facts were stored in these wafers. Without them, he was thick-tongued and trapped in the ellipsis of his conquered stutter, the neural impulse that flickered like a Maltese cross in a cinema projector. The shadows, he said. Yes, but it's much weirder than that. The sun, depending over the river through shadows of a line of trees, alongside the farm track over the fields in parallel lines. But out there, with no logic in physics, the shadows of ancient oaks, left from the era of demolition, ran the other way, as if the shadows somehow preceded the structures to which they belonged. When Brian Parkcher in the car of his friend, the painter Rebecca Hind, they noticed a psychic manifestation that belonged somewhere between their mutual but discrete zones of interest. 
There were three shadows in the burnt yellow of the field, well away from the trees and the pylons and the hedges, and they had no obvious source. There were no aircraft overhead. There were no elongated clouds. The time of day, the heightened acuity of two artists trying to put a clammy grip of the private chapel behind them. These were shadows left by phantom buildings of the ruined village, shapes of lost farms that should have been perceptible only on infrared film, cameras sweeping the landscape from the helicopter or glider. In the war years, Newnham House was requisitioned by the Ministry of Defense and used by the RAF for interpretation of photographic evidence brought back from reconnaissance missions over enemy territory. Totes Mere, the Paul Nash painting of the frozen ice seas of wrecked aircraft was done a mile or two down the road at Cowley. And like Rebecca Hind, he honored the landscape and the special light of Dorchester on Thames. A partially eclipsed sun hangs above the junkyard glacier, cut wings, crumpled fuselages in this apocalyptic dump. The vision could have been constructed from layer upon layer of reconnaissance prints from Newnham House. One of the, the final strange thing is that w when we'd finished this day and Brian was dabbling away on his mobile phones as usual, I, was, I went into the card rack and I picked up a, a postcard of St. Nicholas of Bari uh, banishing the storm, which is a fabulous painting. And I wanted to take it home as a kind of a, a gift, a healing gift in some ways. Um, and it haunted me and I finished the book with this image of this postcard and a little account of it. And then Brian sent me, he'd written for modern painters an account of a, uh, an image in the Ashmolean that haunted him, and it was about this painting. It was a, it's a wonderful um, a dialogue about this painting and its mysteries. And in a sense, that's how it works. You know, this book and that book couldn't, couldn't be more difficult and different. But the, the, the common base ground is, is there in both of them. And I think goes goes back a, lo a long way into uh, early early collaborations and expeditions uh, when we didn't really know what we were doing and um, blundered across all sorts of extraordinary landscapes. Um. Okay. Um, I think that's it. Um, thank you very much to both of you. Um, stay and have another glass of wine and buy some books. And I think you'll both be signing. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.